Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, comedian, filmmaker, bandito. Ooh, let's talk about the movies of 2007, which is what we're doing in this season of Awesome Movie Year. And in this episode, we're talking about the best picture winner at the Oscars, which is the Coen Brothers' No Country for Old Men. It's kind of amazing to me that this movie won best picture. I will say, having watched it again. I agree. It's uh, <laughs> it's just a hard-boiled, like uh, we said in the preview, relentless, just beat down on the senses and uh, very violent. And, uh, you know, the Coens uh, didn't, didn't have most of the humor that their other best picture had. Yeah, they, uh, they definitely, this is maybe their darkest movie, I think. Um, but also just as a, as a best picture winner. I mean, in our first season in 1994, we talked about Forrest Gump which is about as far as you can get from this movie. And that's kind of the thing I think of with big Oscar winners is this kind of crowd-pleasing, flawed kind of thing. And that's the opposite of really of what's going on here in this movie. And, you know, we talked about Juno recently, and Juno was the nominee that had made the most money worldwide. So this was not a huge year for uh, box office as far as Oscar nominees went, at least for Best Picture. Yeah. Uh, although this movie, No Country for Old Men, did pretty well. It made $171.6 million uh, worldwide at the box office on a budget of $26 million. So that's a hit, really, yeah. any way you look at it. Uh, and it is the second highest grossing Coen Brothers movie. Do you want to guess what the first highest grossing one is? Oh, man, that's going to be tough because my, my immediate thought would be Fargo because it won everything, right? Yeah. But then I'm thinking like, oh, brother, maybe? Oh, Burn After Reading because it does Brad Pitt. No, although that one did well, the uh, highest grossing Coen Brothers movie is True Grit. I figured as much. Yeah, yeah oh, now you figured as much. <laughs> now that we Dave totally that. knew that. Yeah. Okay, Dave. Yeah, but this is, uh, like, it's the second highest grossing. It's certainly one of their most successful films commercially. Uh, they've made a lot of movies that, especially early in their career, I think have cult followings now, but at the time really did almost nothing at the box office. And this is uh, one of their films that features the most Tommy Lee Jones in it. It does feature a lot of Tommy Lee Jones. I didn't count. Has he been in other Coen Brothers movies? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, <laughs> so it features, it's the the, the highest, number one, the number one Tommy Lee amount Jones. Amount of Tommy Lee Jones. Coen Brothers Of all the Coen movie. Brothers Yeah, movies. that's quite an achievement. It premiered at the 2007 Cannes Film Festival and went on to be nominated for eight Oscars and won for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor for Javier Bardem, Best Director for the Coens, and Best Adapted Screenplay, also for the Coens, adapting the novel by Cormac McCarthy. And overall, it it has a crazy um, connect rate. It was nominated for 109 awards. And won 76. Yeah. Not all at the Oscars. Not all. (laughs) Didn't win 76 Oscars? No, but that's an amazing amount of success right there. Yeah, it is. It's it's huge. It was everywhere that year, Uh, which is, I feel like now the Coens, whenever they do something, it's this huge event, but it wasn't always the case before this movie. Yeah. And this one just broke through in such a different way. Uh, 354 top 10 lists at the end of the year, 90 of them that was ranked number one on. Yeah, it was on my top 10 list. I was looking, uh, I had it at number two. Behind? Zodiac. Oh yeah, you love Zodiac. I do love Zodiac, yes. I um, love Zodiac too. All right, mm-hmm. yes, we're in agreement. But uh, Josh likes it because of the filmmaking achievement. You like it because you murder people. True. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Dave actually has a whole uh, bunch of music about murdering people. Also true. That he plays (laughs) when murdering people. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I really liked this movie. I was a big Coen Brothers fan before this, so I was excited to see it anyway, but I was certainly really blown away by it in 2007. When we first started hearing about it, it's like, oh, yeah, of course this has got to be the Coen Brothers, right? You know, this sprawling... Um, what do you, what do you want to call it? A modern Western with that? Yeah, fair? yeah, you can you call know? it, a, or even a postmodern Western. Right, exactly. And it's about, uh, <clears throat> just this hardcore war for this money, you know, that's stolen, uh, in, in, uh, the expanse of Texas. And it's got all these kind of good actors in it. It's like, yeah, there's kind of good actors, very good actors. Yeah. These are very good actors in yeah. it and actresses. Oh, the whole cast. Very wonderful. Good. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, award winners. Right. I was just going to say. 
they've been officially acknowledged <laughs> as such. So yeah, this just felt like right up their alley. And, you know, we know that the Coens have kind of adapted other things before this, the Odyssey into Oh Brother, right. things like that. But, but nothing as directly as this. This is their first straight up adaptation. Yeah, yeah. So did you see this? I mean, I am assuming that you were a Coen Brothers fan. I feel like we had seen a lot of Coen Brothers movies before this. I love the Coen Brothers, always, always have, you know. And once I got into them, I went all the way back to the beginning of the canon, the Blood Simple and... Uh, it's just called Blood Simple, guys. But, you know, uh, you know, and moved it all the way forward. I think I've probably seen every Coen Brothers movie. Uh, maybe not one. Who knows? But um, I have to I have to feel like I saw this in the theater. Yeah. But I don't remember. You don't remember. Yeah, I definitely did. <laughs> I, I mean, I keep records. So I looked back and I did see this at a press screening. I was doing professional movie reviews at the time, although I didn't write a review of this. You know, every episode in 2007, you say that. We get it. You were a professional movie critic in, seven, in 2007, buddy. I'm just, every <laughs> every episode is someone's first episode, man. We hope so. Yeah. And if this is your first, welcome aboard. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I liked it a lot when I first saw it. I, like I said, I put it on my top 10 list. I was a big fan of it. I don't think I'd seen it again until now, even though I had the DVD at home, but I think it's just been sitting on a shelf since 2007. I haven't seen it again since my first time either. And I'm like, man, I'm trying to think back. Was it in the theater? Was it at home? But it's, it's, um, it's a very good movie, but it's tough. It's tough. And, you know, takes a lot out of you in some ways. Yeah, that is true. I mean, it is, like I was saying, probably the Coen brothers, darkest movie, uh, or at least one of the darkest. And it has less humor than a lot of other Coen's movies. Although I was surprised to note this time that there is a lot of humor in this movie. Like there are funny moments. Yeah. And a lot of that good, uh, you know, Southern style humor where it's just like, uh, you know, where um, Gareth Hedlund says to. uh, um, Gareth Dillahunt. Yes. That guy says to Tommy Lee Jones, he goes, this is quite a, it looks like we're in for quite a mess. He goes, well, if this ain't the mess, It'll do till it gets here or something right. like that. Yeah, this. there's a lot of deadpan stuff in this movie that's really well delivered by all of the actors. Uh, and this movie, again, was very, very well reviewed. In addition to all the award stuff that you mentioned, it has a 93% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and was on a million top 10 lists. Uh, Roger Ebert said, many of the scenes in No Country for Old Men are so flawlessly constructed that you want them to simply continue. And yet they create an emotional suction drawing you to the next scene. Another movie that made me feel that way was Fargo. To make one such film is a miracle. Here is another. So I, I'm with him on that. I don't want those scenes to continue. I think, you know, uh, leaving, leaving people wanting more is the way to go here. Right. Well, I think that's what he's saying is that you want, you feel like you want them to continue and then they stop and you realize it's the perfect the time right to go on to the next scene. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I think his comparison to Fargo here makes a lot of sense. Um, plot wise too, this is a, a similar, the kind of crime story where everything goes wrong and people end up dead. Lots of bottom line sons of bitches, man. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Um, A.O. Scott in the New York times said no country for old men adapted by Joel and Ethan Cohen from Cormac McCarthy's novel is bleak, scary, and relentlessly violent at its center is a figure of evil. So calm, so extreme, so implacable that to hear his voice is to feel the temperature in the theater drop. The most lasting impression left by this film is likely to be the deep satisfaction that comes from witnessing the nearly perfect execution of a difficult task. No Country for Old Men is purgatory for the squeamish and the easily spooked. For formalists, those moviegoers sent into raptures by tight editing, nimble camera work, and faultless sound design, it's pure heaven. Yeah, so maybe maybe that, when you're talking about what a surprise it was for you to uh, that it won the Oscar, you know, maybe a lot of people recognize just the merit of all the achievements of this film. And Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, like he still hasn't won, has he? Has he? Won I think he won for Blade Runner. Okay, right. good. Yeah. Well, it's but about he had been time, nominated bro. like fifteen times or something. He was a Susan Lucci of. He was. You know, he really was. Yeah. And I, it's like he could have won for any number of films. Yeah, his work in this movie is just so fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Like sometimes he just changes levels so quietly, right? Where you're following um, one of the characters, and you, you know, it's just such a smooth move to get you to that next pace, but it's not showy at all. Um, it's really, really good stuff. Yeah, all the craft in this movie is amazing, and I mean, you can talk about 
sort of the more technical parts like cinematography and editing, but the craft of the acting in this movie is just phenomenal. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This is some good stuff all the way through. And um, I don't, was Josh Brolin a movie star before this? I mean, I think he was well known, but I don't know that he was at the same level before doing this movie. I mean, I did read about how he had to fight to get the part right, and he was... had to audition a few times. So it wasn't a slam dunk, but I feel like with the Coens, mm. Even people who are super famous, even if you're Brad Pitt or George Clooney, they're going to put you through your paces. Yeah, it was going to be Heath Ledger, which is interesting to think yeah, about. Yeah, I, I mean, Heath Ledger obviously was very talented, but I feel like Brolin owns this so much, I can't imagine someone else doing it. Yeah, um, I'm sure it would have been uh, really good that way, too. But, uh, you know, they said that because um, he was working on Death Proof at the time or Grindhouse. Brolin was. Brolin was. Yeah. yeah. So he had like Rodriguez and Tarantino help him with his audition tape. Yeah. And this is a totally opposite style of performance that you would have in one of their movies. So oh, yeah. that's pretty unique. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's excellent. And he's, he's done a lot of really good stuff since this. Mm. Um, but I, I thought it was interesting because that, that point about craftsmanship is one thing that the Coens, if people don't like their work, sometimes criticize them that it's so meticulous and composed that there's no emotion to it. And I don't agree, but that's a common criticism. Yeah. And you know, when we talked to Juno about the stylized dialogue, that could also be a criticism of a lot of Cohen films, not this one. This one isn't this one I think is very true to the area, but you know, um, a lot of stylized dialogue and other pieces. of There are. Yeah. I mean, and even the dialogue here, even though it's sparse, like there's parts of it that are stylized. A lot of it I think is taken directly from the novel, but, but still, um, and so that kind of leads to I want and I've got a negative review here from Dana Stevens in Slate. And she's obviously not a Cohen's fan. She says, walking out of No Country for Old Men, Joel and Ethan Cohen's new adaptation of a Cormac McCarthy novel. I finally understood something about why the Cohen's work has always left me cold. The brothers make movies that can be good, even very good, without seeming essential. They can pull off bravura camera work, Raising Arizona, Dark Wit, Fargo, or chair-gripping suspense, Miller's Crossing, and now No Country for Old Men. What they can't seem to do, at least for me, is make movies that matter. The Coen's movies are effective, diabolically so, without being affecting. And I don't agree with that, but I thought it's an interesting perspective. Hey, Stevens. (laughs) Come on in, Stevens. I got something to tell you. What's wrong with you? You're not affected by these movies, huh? Where's that void in your heart? What's going on with you? You can just ignore... The mastery of the Coen brothers all these years. Nothing affected you? Not the dude? Not the Hudsucker proxy? Nothing? Nothing affected you? Hmm. I have questions. Oh, Stevens, where art thou? (laughs) I mean, I think she would, I don't know if she would argue this, but I think some of of Coen's critics would argue that the void in the heart is is in them, that they are heartless as filmmakers and they they treat their, their characters as like, specimens under a microscope and there's no emotion. And I, again, I don't agree. And I think you, it's, I can't imagine you can watch Fargo and not feel like they have a, affection or emotion for Marge Gunderson, but it's something that people do say. No, I know. And, and one of the criticisms of this film, uh, spoiler guys is, uh, where is the way that, uh, Llewellyn is finally killed and it's just, it's off screen. Right. It's like, it's just, uh, a happenstance in a way, you know, of, of uh, his wife's mother kind of letting letting uh, the, the other bad guys. So many bad so guys many bad in this guys movie, yeah. know where he is. And people are like, well, we invested all this time in him. We we at least need to see what happened. And it's like, like no, this this is it. We moved on, you right. know, so. People were angry about that back in the theater. I remember <laughs> people like talking out loud in the theater, like, what the hell is this? Like. Right. Just mad. It's so shocking, I think, in a way that makes it more effective. But I just think sometimes, you know, removing yourself makes a movie, um, amp, uh, you know, you amp up that level of emotion instead yeah. of taking it away. Yeah. I mean, I think that I agree that that moment in this movie is really effective and partly because it's so surprising that you spend a couple minutes, at least I did, even this time, because I didn't quite remember thinking like, Wait, is he really dead? Mm-hmm. Really? That's it? He's dead now? And and it just it it throws you off balance, but in a good way. Um, and I think also that you're right that that the Coens, their aloofness can actually bring more emotional power to the movie sometimes. And at that point, we're almost exclusively moving back to Tommy Lee Jones and his emotional story. And we get it through his point of view. He's so close to being there to save the day. Right. And he misses it. And you know, the 
uh, Llewellyn is dead in a uh, crossfire of gang violence. Yeah, I mean, and I think Tommy Lee Jones, I mean, he's known for being a stoic actor, obviously, but you can tell that his character in this movie has so much emotion going on under the surface and and so many conflicted feelings about retirement and about the way the world is going and even about his relationship with his wife. And that all comes across here. There's no country for old men. So true. And let's talk more about the deep uh, insight that Jason just had there when we come back and give our general thoughts on No Country for Old Men. Today's episode is sponsored by the Golden Tiki, recently named one of the top tiki bars in the United States by the Food Network, and also one of the top 10 best nightlife destinations in Las Vegas by USA Today. They've got great rum, mixed drinks, and of course the Dole Whip. They've got theme nights, DJs, all kinds of fun stuff, including Alan Bud's Oasis, who are two robotic parrots that put on a great show every hour on the hour. So next time you're in Las Vegas, make sure to check out the Golden Tiki on Spring Mountain. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2007, we're talking about the Best Picture winner, No Country for Old Men from the Coen Brothers. And I think it's safe to say we both like this movie a lot. I did like it a lot. And, uh, you know, we were making a joke about the title before the break. You know where the title's from? It's from a Yates poem, I think. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Sailing to Byzantium. Right. What's what your a- favorite Yates poem? Sailing to Byzantium. <laughs> I love it. Good, good. Then this worked out for you. So. I, I was so excited they used part of it for the title of this movie. I didn't even, like, it was like, even if this wasn't a Cohen Western, I mean, you use the Yates poem in there. Yeah. You got to see the movie. You got to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I've not read any Yates poems. Um, but I have read at least one Cormac McCarthy novel. Had you ever read any of his books? Oh, no. Yeah, okay. Was it The Road? Did it was The Road, yeah. I mean, so I certainly, I never read oh. No Country for Old Men, and I had not read any of his books by the time I first saw this movie. Yeah, way to look down on me when you're reading McCarthy 101 there, I, yeah, okay, no, guy. I, I started three of them. Wow, didn't but didn't finish, finish any, any of them. Of them. Did no, you okay. dislike them, or? No, I'm just a bad reader. So. I mean, they are they are kind of an acquired taste, like the Coens, in a way. <laughs> I mean, the way he writes is very idiosyncratic, and he doesn't use punctuation, so it's kind of tough to follow in some ways. But I mean, I liked, I remember liking reading the road. Um, but this movie is not the road. This is no country for old men. Way to bring it back. Buddy. Thank you. I'm, that's why, you know, I'm, uh, I'm in charge. <laughs> I don't know. I shouldn't be Jason. Tell us some thoughts. <laughs> Just a strong, strong work overall from you, Josh. Thank you. Um, some thoughts. It is interesting to me that it starts off with narration from Tommy Lee Jones's character, because we move away from him for so long. And I don't think there's any other narration in the movie, right? That's it. I don't recall. There may be some more from him towards the end. I don't know, but it may just be like dialogue that starts before you get into a scene. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're going to bookend it, you know, it does end with him telling his wife and I could see that would piss a lot of people off. Oh, too. it did. Yeah, it yeah. definitely did. I, I had ends. people calling me on the phone and saying, can you explain what the hell just happened in No Country for Old Men? Why just, were they just calling randomly you? calling yeah. Because they're, I was, I was their movie friend. Oh, you know? okay. so, yeah. And now it's not strangers. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. Did you set up like know, a support yeah. line or something? <laughs> like, hey. Call 1-800-DAVE. Talks movies. Yeah. Did you need like like, hey guys, if you're if you need some help on this no country thing, I got you or yeah, whatnot. Yeah. But it did it did annoy a lot of people. And I think it's another thing like the the death of Llewellyn Moss, Josh Brolin's character, where at first you're so caught off guard, you're like, what? Wait, no, the movie isn't over. How could that be the end? But then you think back on it and it's really the right way to do things. I think it kind of makes sense in the in the overall theme of like. We're focusing on on these people, but in the grand scheme of things, do anything, does anything really matter? Do these people really matter? Does Dave's helpline really matter? No, no. It's yeah, it is a kind of a nihilistic movie. And I mean, part of it really is about Tommy Lee Jones, his character, Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, who's spent his entire life in law enforcement, kind of realizing that there's only so much that he can do and that, that life is passing him by, that the world is passing him by and he has to be able to accept that. Right. And it's, you know, that Tex- Texas, Mexico border. So there's that whole kind of uh, influx of drug warfare 
that's this is 1980 it takes place so we already know like man that thing is uh, it's about to heat up it's uh you know if i can say it's gotten out of hand <laughs> so uh, bold, bold statement yeah so i mean you know this is an old you know that narration in the beginning is you know my daddy was a lawman and his his daddy was a lawman and it's like an old school guy and the the ways the methods and uh the world itself might be just passing him by at this point in time. Right. And I think you realize too, um, as the movie goes on and especially once Llewellyn is killed and it's like, Oh, the movie is still going for a while that really the main character is Ed Tom Bell is Tommy Lee Jones's character. And it's kind of been obscured for a while, but this is his story more than it's Llewellyn's story or Anton Sugar, the villain played by Javier Bardem, more than it's his story. I think you could argue also it is Anton Sugar's story, partially because he's just like, I mean, he comes off the screen in this very cold, calculating, psychopathic way. But, um, you know, it, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of his story there, too, in this chase to recover the money and all the, you know, the scenes that he's not in where they talk about him and they're like, he doesn't care about anything. He just lives by his own principles. And, you know, you see the coin toss, which is a major scene that we see play yeah. off again later. Yeah. Um, where a guy basically his life is saved because he's a gas station uh, or he runs like a little, you know, yeah, mini a gas mart. station and convenience store. Kind right. Of thing. And Sugar uh, makes him call heads or tails. And if he called it wrong, he was clearly going to kill him. But uh, hey, on that day, he got it right. So he gets to live another day. Right. Um. Just, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's both their movies. Yeah. Um, I guess what I mean is that even though he's a huge presence, Sugar, that the, the core of the story is about Tommy Lee Jones, that Sugar is really this malevolent force. We don't understand him as a person necessarily. And the movie is interested in the emotional life if it's interested in anyone's emotional life of ed tom bell yeah, even more I mean, so than Llewellyn. how can you understand a psychopath i know? mean it's it, it's possible i just don't think this movie is interested in it and that's fine i mean he's scary because he's mysterious because we can't quite understand him i mean even you said he's trying to recover the money but is he i mean he is hired by these guys yeah, to, just to recover the money and then he just kills them. Yeah, so he who just, is he recovering this money for? Well, I thought you could you could say he's recovering it for himself. I mean, it's a lot of money there. Well, so. right. It's a lot of money, but it wasn't stolen from him. He doesn't right. even really seem like he cares about money. Like he right. just seems like he would just get it and just move forward. This is the job. and Right. That, this so. is the job. And yet, but also, again, he, he just kills the people who hired him for the job. So there's no one holding him accountable. I read that uh, there was like a study in 2018 uh, where I think it was psychiatrists or psychologists. Um, they looked at 400 movies and 126 psychopathic characters. And they said, this was the most accurate portrayal of what a psychopath is. So I can believe that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think he really captures that uh, the detached nature. There's that scene in the beginning of the movie where he chokes the deputy with the handcuffs and the, the expression on his face is just, astonishing and yeah from that moment even that's one of the first scenes you you realize what a force this guy is i got i marked that down in my notes as well because i felt like uh it went from like ecstasy to nothingness you right know, um very quickly so um yeah and you know when you talk about the details of the cohen's i this i thought was so crazy um the way they got his hairstyle they found a picture of a customer from a brothel from 1979. And they were like, that's the picture we want. You know, that's yeah. the hairstyle we want, which right. is such a tiny, tiny detail. But you remember what he looks like, what he walks like, what he wears, you know, his uh, the way he paces his words, just everything, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that hairstyle is iconic now. And it, you can absolutely see that being a huge risk at the time they were making the movie. And thinking, is this really how we want? I mean, trying to imagine a Harvey, Javier Bardem showing up to the set and they say, oh, this is how we want your hair to look and wondering if they're crazy. Yeah. But it works so well. Right. Yeah. I mean, just uh, I feel like the, there there's that legend of Anton Sugar that um, was partially built up um, by the other characters talking about him in other scenes like, you know, 
when Woody Harrelson, who's great in his few scenes here, yeah. he's really good. Yeah. Carter Carter Gates is it or something? Uh, Carter Wells, I want to okay, say. Okay, Carter Wells comes in and you know he's talking to Llewellyn and um, he's trying to explain to him who Anton Sugar is and uh, Llewellyn says like, well, how does he strike? And he says he's like he strikes me as a man who doesn't have a sense of humor. Right. <laughs> like that's such a good deal, which is a great understatement, but also totally true. And then earlier in the scene with Stephen Root. Where uh, who's hiring him to go get Anton Chigurh and get the money? Uh, and Stephen Root asks him, "How would you characterize him generally?" Um, and Woody Harrelson says, uh, or he has, "How dangerous is he?" And Woody Harrelson says, "Compared to what the bubonic plague?" <laughs> right, right. And that's just again, I mean, that's like an overstatement. And but somewhere in between the bubonic plague and guy who has no sense of humor, <laughs> yeah. yet somehow those are both yeah. accurate assessments There's, of him. He's got a Woody Harrelson has such a great line in that scene that you're talking about too where you know he's in this fancy business office and uh he just sits down and steven root uh says you know i didn't tell you you could sit down and woody harrelson says you struck you struck me as a man who wouldn't want to waste his chair yeah <laughs> that's so good you know so <laughs> yeah there's i mean and that was what i was saying before is that this movie is funny there are funny moments in it um i think i mean it's very dark and it's disturbing and it's violent and I wouldn't characterize it as a comedy, but it has levity in it. It has something that's recognizable from other Coen brothers movies. I would actually go as far as to say is that gas station scene is one of the funniest things the Coens have ever done. I think it's so good. Oh, uh, it's a great scene, but you're insane. If you think that's like oh, a funny it's scene, it's hilarious. No, there is that great out where, uh, he gives the guy the coin and he tells him, you know, don't put it in your pocket because this is your lucky coin. And if you put it in your pocket, this will just be another coin, which it is. Right. You know? yeah. Right. It's all good. Every line in that scene. I yeah. I mean, not that funny. Scene is that's great, menacing. I, yeah, yeah. I didn't. That's not one of the moments that I thought of as funny. Yeah. Well, oh, he's. See, that's just dark comedy. Well, me, man. Josh, me and you, not murderers. Right. <laughs> yes, I guess that's true. Yeah. <laughs> as far as we know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think like Garrett Dillahunt's character I have forgotten that he was even in this movie and he's so great as the kind of naive deputy who clearly idolizes Tommy Lee Jones and is just kind of puppy dogging behind him. And I thought a lot of the stuff that he says was, was funny and he just does a great job in a movie where he's so overshadowed by all these other actors, but is really good. He's usually good in everything. And I think a lot of the time he plays that kind of side character who you might not, uh, that might not be the first thing you think about after the movie, but he's always fun to watch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But um, especially, I think, again, because maybe I had forgotten that, oh, he's in this, too. And maybe in 2007, I wasn't as familiar with him. Yeah. Um, you but, know, we should talk about the women, too. You know, they're, <clears throat> for the most part, background players, but they bring a lot of depth and uh, a lot of emotional resonance to the story, I think, you know. Yeah. Kelly McDonald is very good and, and really has what you were saying, a lot of that emotional power. Yeah. As Llewellyn's wife. And then when we meet her mom, who is this uh, typically horrible Texas woman, and I'm not saying that Texas women are horrible in general, but uh, if you say like there is a stereotype of old lady, naggy Texas women who yeah. complain, she nails it like all the way through. You she know? does. Yeah. Beth Grant is great. And she's a great character actor. He's in a million things, but she does an excellent job. And she has one line when she's complaining about them and she's about how they're, she's being rushed off to go somewhere and she doesn't know where they're going. And she's and me with the cancer right. or something like that. And it's yeah. just so funny. Yeah. Right. And then the next time you see them, she's, complaining because she doesn't think that uh, her daughter packed the prednisone or whatever. Right, right, right. And, and of course, the idea is she's entirely oblivious to the real danger that they're in. And, and like you were saying before, she inadvertently tells the bad guys exactly where Llewellyn is so they can go kill him. Right, right, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think we need those scenes with Tommy Lee Jones's wife in there, too, to kind of show that home life and show a different side of him. You know, he says like, you know, after he retires, like, I think I'm going to go ride in today. Do you want to, do you want to go with me? And she says, well, I didn't retire. Right. You know, so. Yeah. 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 That's a great relationship in just a handful of scenes. And you can get the sense of this life that he's lived, which again, I think goes back to the idea of him as the core of the story. Um, but yeah, all, all of the performances, Brolin, Javier Bardem, of course, is amazing. I mean, that villain would never work if his performance didn't completely captivate you. I had read that the other person that was really deep in contention was Mark Strong. Yeah. So that would have been interesting. I mean, it would have been a totally different. I mean, this this had to be Javier Bardem, right? Yeah, you know? yeah. He's amazing. I mean, Mark Strong is a good actor and has played villains before. 
but I don't know if it would been if it would have been as <clears throat> as iconic and had the same level of impact. Yeah, I mean, there's such a the slow staccato that he talks with is so uh, man, it's just so memorable. Yeah, I mean, I think actually part of it, and I assume this is not from the book, if they were considering someone like Mark Strong, but his accent, the fact that he is Spanish and he's speaking with this clear accent is another thing that marks him as kind of this outsider. And even though this takes place on the the Texas-Mexico border, as you're saying, like we get no sense that Anton Chigurh is like a Mexican immigrant or something. He's no. just this alien presence from some other exactly, place. Exactly, exactly that. Uh I couldn't tell you where he's from. Right. And I think that that accent that Javier Bardem adds to that, whereas if we just had someone doing an American accent or even Mark Strong in his British accent that he has naturally, I don't know that it would have had the same effect. Yeah. Interesting. When, you know, we think about the legacy, right? This was right around the time of Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Yeah, that came, I think, the next year. And this was this was really a breakout for him as far as far as in the U.S. Yeah. And he's kind of uh, I don't we don't really see him that much. anymore. Yeah, he's back and forth. He does Spanish language movies pretty regularly still. But uh, I mean, this was a big, big, big thing for him. Right. I'm saying I know that he's not a mainstream presence here. No. Yeah, not quite. Not quite. Um, But he's amazing in this movie. And I mean, and he he's such a force that he could easily overpower everyone else. But all the other actors hold their own with him. Josh Brolin, Tommy Lee Jones, even Woody Harrelson. I mean, they all make this really strong impact. And I think that goes to how good the Coen brothers are at working with actors. Yeah. Also, you named three really good actors. Well, sure. But I mean, just just by the nature of the character. It it could overpower these other characters who don't have as much presence. Right. Uh, Right. Like I, like I said, like Harrelson's in there for what, just a couple of scenes, but he may, he makes the most of it. Yeah. He's such a good actor to watch, you know? Yeah, he is. um, I, I agree with you. You know, this, this, this was the big breakout for Javier Bardem, but uh, I mean, any, any single person could have won any award for this one yeah absolutely i i totally agree that acting in this movie is amazing and it's amazing too in a way because the story is pretty basic and conventional i mean the idea of guy stumbles across a bunch of monies that money that criminals have left and then it ruins his life has been done in movies going back to the 30s and 40s and yet they put such a unique spin on it that it feels fresh at every moment yeah, you know, this this feels like I'd love to see him team up with Taylor Sheridan at some point. In yeah, time. it does feel yeah. a bit like a Taylor. Of course, Josh Brolin in Sicario and Sicario 2, which not as good. Yeah, Sicario <laughs> 2, Electric Boogaloo. Right. Yeah, that was the, the title right there was the where they went wrong. <laughs> you know, if you're going to make a movie about fighting drug lords, they probably shouldn't also be in breakdancing competitions. Right, right. So it was a. Just a miss from the beginning. Definitely wrong. But but yeah, I mean, there's you can see a lot of, I'm sure Taylor Sheridan is heavily influenced by Cormac McCarthy. Maybe not as much the Coens, but by McCarthy, 100%. Couple of things that, uh, you know, when we're talking about little uh, detail scenes that show you who these characters are, Javier Bardem is driving on a bridge alone and he just decides to shoot at a bird for no reason. Yeah, and which he like, misses. He does miss, right? Well- did he use did he use his uh what is that called? Oh, like the, a, the air gun thing yeah. for cattle? No, he uses just a pistol. Well, maybe that was the problem. Right. Yeah. But I think that's funny because of course he gets every other. In fact, I'm pretty sure the only target that he fails to eliminate in this movie is that bird. Yeah, that bird is <laughs> maybe that's next for him at the end of the yeah. movie. So the the revenge on the bird. Yeah, what did you think about the way that his story ended where he does go and uh you know, track down Llewellyn's wife, Kelly, the Kelly McDonald character. Well, I think it goes to the idea of, of his weird principles right. that he has committed to something and he's going to follow through, even though there's no reason whatsoever for him to do it is no benefit for him at all. You know, he's just like, he's promised to these guys that he's going to recover the money and then he kills them immediately, but he still goes and recovers the money. He's promised Llewellyn that he'll kill the wife. If Llewellyn doesn't give the money over, he kills Llewellyn, he gets the money. And yet he still feels like he has to go kill the wife. Right. And I think, you know, he, he did give her that quote unquote chance to save her life by the coin, the coin. And she refused to do it, which is really a strong choice to say like this this doesn't mean anything you right know? right you're making the choice not the coin yeah she has that strength all the way through to the end and that's another moment too where you could there they allied something and you see him coming out of the house and it throws you off and you start thinking like wait did he kill her what happened here 
And you have to infer that. And I didn't even realize that when he comes out of the house, he's looking at his shoes and Bloody. checking for blood. Yeah. And I kind of missed that this time around um, and was a little unsure of what had happened. But yeah, clearly he kills her. Yeah. Um, you know, then then he gets into a he gets T-boned by another car. Right. His arm is like the bone is sticking out of his skin. And he just, uh, you know, asks the kid for a shirt to tourniquet it up and sling it up. And then he leaves. And that's. The last we see of Anton Sugar. Yeah, he's like the Terminator just walking. <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, I, it kind of reminded me of that where they would just just walk away from everything and just say to some random passerby, oh, I need your shirt. You know, I, I felt very Terminator-ish to You're me. You're saying you think Arnold Schwarzenegger should have played this part? You know I think Arnold Schwarzenegger might have been good in this part. <laughs> I think you're right. You yeah. Have, I think, know, you know. toned it down a little. If we had Schwarzenegger or Mark Strong. I think I would have gone with Schwarzenegger. It's been interesting. Yeah, but no, but Javier Bardem is is amazing in this. I think rather than that, what I'm saying is Javier Bardem should play the Terminator. I'm with you on that. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, uh, new Terminator. We're gonna shelve you for a little while because <laughs> we got a recasting here. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. All those little details. One thing that another detail thing that I loved in that scene that we were talking about at the beginning, where he chokes the cop out. And you can see all the scuff marks on the floor from where the cop is kicking yeah. and his shoes have like marked up the floor. And as Anton Sugar walks away, you can see exactly where those marks kind of like stop. And mm. then the floor is clean right after it. I thought that was a really good detail. Uh, that is interesting. I like uh, how about when uh, Llewellyn gets out of the hospital in Mexico, crosses the border, still in his hospital gown, right? Yeah. Goes back to the Western wear store where he bought his cowboy boots. He's in full hospital gown and cowboy boots, right? And the guy who sold him the boots looks at him, doesn't even acknowledge that he's in a hospital gown. Says, how are those Larrys working out for you? Yeah, you know? I mean, that's a that's a great funny moment. Yeah. yeah. I don't see how you can watch this movie and see that and not say that this movie is funny. Well, I didn't say right, No, but other people may have, yeah. may have seen it that way. Um yeah, so so many uh, little bits are are so uh, so well done. One thing I wonder about: um, Do you think Llewellyn is a hero? Is he a good person? Uh, I don't know. He's not a hero. I don't know if he's a. You mean you mean in the protagonist? No, I mean he or... he's the protagonist, or we can see him as the protagonist. But is he is he a good person? Is he someone we root for? I think we're only rooting for him because he's the protagonist, yeah. right? He's, yeah, he's a, he's, he served his country two tours in Vietnam. Right. He's trying to protect his wife and give her a better life. He's and, trying to protect his wife because he put her in danger. Right. That's true. Um, you know, I mean the hero as like an everyday blue collar person, like, Hey, I'm a Springsteen fan. So, you know, it's like, what else are you going to do? But is he a hero? No, he's not a hero. Yeah, I guess I was seeing this and some reviews that I was looking up talked about how he was so sympathetic and how you're really with him. And I thought from the very beginning, like he stumbles across the money. Sure. And like I said, there've been a lot of movies like that where everyday people just stumble across this and they take it. But he doesn't just stumble across the money. Right. He, he finds, finds guy. this guy who's dying and begs for water. He leaves the guy to die. And then he goes off and tracks down the money. And then it's only later that night or early morning that he thinks, you know what? Maybe I ought to bring that guy water. And of course, the guy's already dead. So yeah. I feel like right from that moment, you're like, he's greedy. He's not particularly moral. Right. And, and yeah, he's trying to protect his wife, but only because he sicked all these people on her to begin with. Yeah. And, you know, when Sugar says, if you give me the money now, you'll die, but she won't. You know, he's he goes, you know. He's like, nah, I, I got this. Right, <laughs> you know, right. I mean, so. he maybe overestimates his own ability to, to take on Shigur and to take on all these people. But I, I mean, one of the things I liked about the movie is that he isn't sympathetic and yet he's still fascinating to watch. And that because you have the Tommy Lee Jones character who is so sympathetic and is such a good person, that that balances it out. I think maybe one of the best sequences is that shootout between the two of them where uh, Shigur blows the door handle off of his uh, hotel room door and it, you know, guts him. Like yeah. he has to jump out the window and they're shooting at each other in the streets and there's a car crash and just really tense, good 
good stuff right there. Yeah, and this isn't a movie that has like a lot of action, but that's a really, really well-staged sequence. Yeah. I think what you're talking about there, uh, it, the fact that this is just a story Tommy Lee Jones' character is recalling is, you know, it, it adds to that so much that there is no true hero to it. Right, yeah, I mean, I'm Tommy not, Lee Jones would be the hero. Right, I think he is. And I'm not saying this as a criticism or as a negative. Oh, I'm, sure, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying that that some people, I was surprised that some people saw Llewellyn that way because that did not seem to me to be right. the case at all. Right. He's charismatic. I mean, dude, he's charismatic as Thanos, right? Well, sure, so, yeah, you know, yeah, like, that's true. Roland yeah. is, uh, yeah, people want to have sex with Thanos. <laughs> yeah, well, um, that's a whole nother issue, a whole nother episode. That is a whole, uh, sorry, I opened that can of worms there. On Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts going through my mind. but About sex with Thanos? Yeah, like, I mean, does he remove the glove or, you know. I does, mean, isn't it better if he doesn't? I don't know. It could be painful. I don't know we yeah, really don't so. need to talk about this. But but the point about Josh Brolin being charismatic and you want it, you wanting to like his character no matter who he plays, I think is fair. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so we any, got there. Any other any other thoughts on this? Movie? I wanted to bring up one other thing is the uh, the sound design, which yeah. I think is some of the best sound design in any movie. I mean, it's so damn good. The the scene in the hotel with the footsteps walking down the hall and then you know turning On the light, bulb. light bulb yeah yeah and all that and then you know i mean uh the score there's so little of it because there's so much focus on on the sound design i mean it just works so freaking well yeah it really does and i think you don't it, you don't notice how little score there is because all right. the other sound works yeah. i mean it's like i the thing i think of is the birds which has no score mm -hmm. but something like that where you 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 don't necessarily realize it until maybe later on because there's so much happening and so much for you to take in so yeah that's that's really amazing that goes back to the the craft the idea that this is a technically perfect movie yes yes so jason out of uh five uh bolts from an air gun <laughs> how five do you want to rate bolts? this i don't know what they're called exactly the, uh, the things yeah. what they do is they like stun this the cattle I well they kill the cattle i think they do more than stun it it goes, I, it goes. I think they do more than Yeah, it goes yeah. into the brain. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there's no splatter. It instantly splatter. kills them with no splatter. Yeah, yeah. So that they can then, they can then cut the throat afterwards. Yeah. So now that we've established that. <laughs> yeah. Four, four death, death dart things. Blow air smacker bolts. Right. Yes. Yeah. Four, I, I four out of five. Yeah. I give it a four out of five too. I really like this movie a lot. It's not my favorite Coen Brothers movie, but I think it's one of their best. And again, I just think it's awesome that this movie won Best Picture because it's not the kind of thing that you would ever expect for that to happen with. You know what's so amazing about the Coen Brothers is they've made so many good movies. In my mind, I'm wondering if this is even a top five for them for me. Yeah, I don't know. It probably is for me, but yeah, they're they're just amazing and everything. I'm not. I, there are Coen Brothers movies that I don't like that much, but I think. I hated Burn After Reading. I didn't really. Like this one. Yeah, oh, I, I like Burn, Burn After Reading. Reading. Yeah. Well, we'll and then, to... uh, well, I didn't hate it. It was all right. I'd have to watch it again. But Intolerable Cruelty, as you know, I I totally hate that movie. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I liked Intolerable Cruelty, but I haven't seen it in a while. Um, well, on that note, we can come back and get into Coen Brothers movies and some other things when we talk about the legacy of No Country for Old Men. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2007, we're talking about the best picture winner, No Country for Old Men from the Coen Brothers. And uh, I think the legacy we were just talking about Coen Brothers films in general, not that they weren't famous or popular or Oscar nominated, but I think this brought them to even another level where every time they make a movie, we expect it's going to be a best picture nominee. Yeah, that seems to be the case. I am looking through the filmography. It's it's not a top five for me, but no? that doesn't mean it's not a great movie. That's how many good movies they have. Right. Yeah, I know? agree. And it might not be for me either. I'd have to really look into it. And some of their movies I haven't seen in quite a long time. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's great. And after this, they had, I mean, in terms of award nominations, uh, A Serious Man and True Grit and Inside Lewin Davis and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs all were nominated for numerous Oscars. Yeah, and I like all those movies, True Grit being my least favorite of that bunch, you know? So it's, uh, maybe I lean more towards uh, their non-Westerns and 
Yeah, I mean, I love True Grit. As we were saying, it's uh, the highest grossing Coen Brothers movie at the box office. And as you were mentioning, Burn After Reading also made quite a lot of money. So another thing that now Coen Brothers movies are movies that could make a lot of money at the box office and hadn't quite been there before. And one that didn't, but is a Western that I really did like was Buster Scruggs. Yeah. That I think I had on my top 10 of the last year. Yeah. Uh, It was a very fun, fun... uh, you know, that that really kind of showcased the, the Cohen humor that we're used to, as well as uh, the fact that they'll just kill anybody. for. No yeah, reason. there's a lot of really dark stuff in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I mean, it's because it's that anthology style. It's a mix of things. But yeah, I like their West. I like the fact that they've made multiple Westerns or Western style films. Um, and I, I don't know if I put it in the top 10, but I mean, I, I love A Serious Man. I love True Grit. I love Inside Lewin Davis. I don't, like Buster Scruggs, I feel like because of the anthology, it's uneven. There are parts of it that I really like and parts not so much. But I'm always excited to see a Coen Brothers movie. I mean, they just have so many runs of like greatness. Like if you're going Fargo, Lebowski, Oh Brother, the man who wasn't there, right? Yeah. That's four in a row that are just beasts yeah i'm not a big oh brother fan but um but yeah fargo i mean and we mentioned how that has a lot of similarities in terms of this the kind of story they're telling to this film uh and going back to blood simple too the the crime story and the noirish kind of thing and everything going yeah on. and barton fink i remember all those hotel sequences with goodman and toro that kind of uh the tension was ratcheted up and that kind of reminded me of some of the sound design stuff that Dave was mentioning in this sure. one. So yeah, they're just like, you, you got to watch them if they make something. Yeah, right? no, they're amazing. And probably if not my favorite working director right now, definitely in the top three, I would think. Who are the other ones? I don't know. I mean, I would say David Fincher, except he hasn't made a movie in so long and, uh, and Noah Baumbach, who we talked about earlier in this season, that might be my number one. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I like that list. So. Yeah. I mean, that's just off the top of my head. I don't know. Yeah. But, but yeah, the Coens are amazing. Um, and beyond the Coens, uh, Cormac McCarthy, this was based on his book and he got, I mean, he was also very, very well known and well regarded, uh, in the literary world. But I think, uh, adapting his work to film kind of got to another level picked up about the road came after. Yeah. The road came after this, uh, as well as, uh, the sunset limited, which was based on one of his plays and was directed by and starred Tommy Lee Jones. Mm. Um, which I am not a big fan of that one, to be honest. It was a, it's an HBO movie and it's very stagey. It's basically like a two person kind of back and forth thing between Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson. Um, that's okay. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. I just, it was, it's very, very mannered and artificial, uh, which we get in, in this movie, but I think the Coens do a better job of that or, uh, a movie that I know you don't like, which is the counselor that was, uh, McCarthy's original screenplay. Yeah. Don't like that movie. I, maybe I'll have to rewatch it cause it's got such a crazy, I don't even want to say cult following is like a large cult following with the people who love that movie are just obsessed with that yeah movie. that's true there were certain critics who just went nuts for that movie and I, I mean i'm with you i remember i think we saw it together and yeah. i remember just thinking what the hell is yeah. this like how is this happening like and i mean having seen the road i think the road is great right and and having seen no country for old men of course i was excited for that and to see ridley scott do something with mccarthy and it just Man, I don't think that movie. Yeah, I agree with you. What was it? All the Pretty Horses was the other was the only other one adapted before this. Yeah, that was before this, right? Which I've never seen that. Have you? Nope, nope. Don't think so. All right. What movie is that? It's uh, Billy Bob based on a Cormac McCarthy novel. Is it the Billy Bob? Yeah, yeah. I did see that movie. Though. Yeah. Okay. I I haven't seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's good. All right. Maybe. Excellent insight there. Yeah, I don't remember it. So. Um. We also talked about Javier Bardem breaking out uh, in the U.S. after this movie, and he did do Vicky Cristina Barcelona the next year, which is probably his other major, highly acclaimed role in the U.S. And a few years after this, he was the villain in Skyfall. And I think we talked about having him play the Terminator. I mean, having him play a James Bond villain is a pretty obvious choice from seeing this movie. Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Although, um, I feel like he's they don't quite utilize him as well as they could in that movie in skyfall in skyfall yeah uh okay i'll go with you on that yeah all right i'm with you fair enough any other thoughts on uh legacy on this film no i mean dude like 76 out of 109 right that's oh the awards yeah something like that 
yeah no it's it uh it has its uh correct place in uh the canon of film history i'd say yeah i agree i think this is a best picture winner that holds up and i'm glad that it won over the academy uh, at the time, I like it a lot more than Forrest Gump. I mean, if you're watching all the best picture winners back to back to back to back or whatever, it's nice to get one like this in there where you're like, oh, they went dark this year. Right. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's kind of bracing. So, yeah, this is a, a great movie. And anyone who hasn't seen it, I mean, I think it's pretty well uh, seen. But if you haven't, check it out. It's good stuff. See the movie. Kids. Yes. So that's No Country for Old Men, and that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on the social media. Oh, yeah, man. We got all the same socials as we've always had. AwesomeMovieYear.com, Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, Awesome Movie Year on Instagram, and Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm still Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram, Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter, and go for Jason on the Webzy. You can find me at joshbellhateseverything.com, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook, and at SignalBleed on Twitter. And follow our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find it wherever you listen to this podcast, and you can find us on social media at PiecingPod. What's up next, Jason? Well, Josh, in the ever-expanding awesome movie year universe, we have a new episode, a new category that we did not have in season one. Producer David Rosen begged us. He said, oh, can I choose a movie? I don't have much going in my life. He, I he's need Oliver asking for gruel. <laughs> Please, need, sir, can I have some more? I need something to make me feel worthy. Can I do, can I do something, please? And we said, Dave, just stop whining and we'll let you choose a movie. It really mean it, really mean it. David, do you know? Oh, I'm just so happy. So, Dave, you fine. chose the tens. The but 10, did, not, not did the 10. Did you tens. just put an S at the end? Yeah, it's just the 10. I certainly didn't. Um, <laughs> I've been watching too much Letter to Kenny. Uh, Dave, the 10, uh, a film by the state, a series of vignettes of sort dealing with the... Uh, the Ten Commandments. Ten that Commandments. Right? That's right. Written and directed by David Wayne and Ken Marino. Uh, directed by David Wayne. And yeah, most of the state. This was a follow-up to Wet Hot American Summer. And uh, looking was forward it, to you guys doing this. Was it or was the Baxter the follow-up? Well, that was, I mean, they, yeah, they all the work in The Baxter was Michael Showalter's yeah. movie, specifically. Yeah. See, he's all like, yeah, the Baxter was Michael <laughs> Showalter's Dave, movie. Dave, are you going to watch this movie before we do the podcast? Actually, I probably will. Oh, wow. This yeah. will be very exciting. This could be, yeah. this could be groundbreaking. It could be. So tune in next time for The Ten. Thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. And all points west. <laughs>